And welcome to yet another episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Oh, oh yes. That is a nice, deep risotto. <laughs> risotto? Isn't that, uh, isn't that a rice dish? I think so. Oh, okay. Uh, nice, nice and deep. No, I, uh, <laughs> had a little, had a little, uh, tickle in my throat earlier this week. Uh, one of those little bugs that, uh, floats around Michigan any time of the year ever. Uh, wound up sounding like Clint Eastwood wow. for about three days, but totally out of my system now. Well, good. And so we're going to be coming to you with some topics tonight. We got some controversial subject matter, so <gasps> you're prepared. Be and of course, heart. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And we're the Dicemen bringing you this podcast recorded live at a place in Michigan with lots of animals. Apparently we have a cat and a couple dogs wandering around, so you're going to hear some clitter-clatter and some meowling. So. Yes, there. any of the above could happen at any moment. Plus, you know, diverse uh, cast of thousands. We've got crickets and birds and whatnot uh, throughout the neighborhood. Yeah, I'm sitting out on the back porch tonight, so it's a good night for recording. Hope you've had a good week, and of course, your weekend coming up. you got plenty of gaming lined up, or... Uh, pretty much during the week as well. Either way, um, we are going to climb into some topic just in a quick second here, but of course you can expect no less from... <laughs> oh, <laughs> the poorly timed traffic signal of gaming podcasts. <laughs> yeah, we're going to stop you on your journey, but hopefully you'll enjoy the ride. You're going to get there, but uh, it's it, going to take you a while. You can never tell what it's going to be. It could be 30 seconds, could be three and a half minutes. You don't yeah. know. Uh, you, you could be sitting there... Uh, you know, <laughs> listening to the... You, you might be obligated to listen to NPR to fill in the time spent waiting. Yeah, some mandolin music. Yeah, yeah. Inexplicable mandolin music. Um, no reason. <laughs> Just mandolins. Well, why not? Well, that's true. This is like a bard competition. Beats ukuleles. Uh-huh. That's right. You can torture people with ukuleles. Oh. Well, Especially I, if it's with Tiny Tim. Yeah. Tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, yeah. With me. Uh, please, no. Yeah, falsetto. Uh, uh, <laughs> not really cut out for that. Nah. No. No, uh, that torment aside, uh, we do have interesting topic, but first we should pin down uh, a little little reference to a call-in we had, uh, Joe Richter. Uh, that was an actual terrific uh, tidbit that you dropped on us. Uh, it was... Something that is relevant to the way in which people access and are made able to play the game. So it was a, it was decidedly a worthy point to get excited over too. Uh, but also, so glad you enjoyed the Deadlands episode. Yeah, we ended up gushing about it because we're big fans of it, and so it just came off as a fan piece, which of course it is. And you know, it's it's a game that's really near and dear to our hearts because it's so evocative of all the Western tropes, you know. I, yeah, how can I? I'm not able to understand how it could not be fun. I, I'm, you know, literally cashing in my chips uh, to get my character out of trouble. Um, yep, I cashing your chips in. Yeah, uh, playing with poker cards, and you're like, I got a full house. Woo! That monster is going down. Uh, that is the best spliced game of all time. With Soul Blast. Uh, it, <laughs> aside from a really, really interesting uh, rules system that was, you know, reasonably well thought out and had a, 
a fair degree of game balance. Yeah. Uh, they managed to accomplish all of that while making it novel, something that you just hadn't seen before. Uh, so, yeah, our affection for that one runs deep. It was it was a love letter to Deadlands. Uh, we may have gushed too much, but I, it's so hard to hate on something that was that much fun to oh, play. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't... My only disappointment was that uh, as the CCG craze really kicked in, uh, and so many CCG card games, you know, they, they were all taking off at once. And uh, this was not the only company to perhaps overinvest in that core concept. Uh, not everybody survived the great cardinating, you know. Just no. So many jumped on board at the same time. Uh, the interest waned. It didn't have the punch it had uh, early on in the days of Magic the Gathering. So, uh, you know, tragically, that led to a contraction market share-wise, and uh, no more Deadlands for a while. Yeah, it's back with uh, back with Pinnacle. They've uh, relaunched Tord too. Well, that's another one for another time. But uh, yeah, that is a worthy discussion. Unique role playing, but you know, I mean, for another time. All right. So we're gonna pay the bills. But again, thank you, Joe, for calling in. Don't and uh, yeah, you were spot on with that. So you weren't. You didn't come across harsh at all, man. No, so. no. I my basic impression of that was like this was a totally worthy point that. Uh, we had completely blanked on. I was thinking accessibility in terms of speed of flow of information, which is a total benefit, but, you know, personal access to being able to play the game tabletop with other people uh, when you have, like, some, you know, impediment to your ability to participate. Tech has been able to help overcome that. Yeah, and that's a lot different than, you know... Uh, playing silly games on your <coughs> smartphone while you're doing uh, supposed to be keeping track of your position and initiative and getting your spells ready or getting your ducks in a row for combat. So that's a completely different animal from what we were coming across, but it's one that bears note. So thank you for reminding us. <coughs> All right. So we're going to go and do a little payment of the bills and we'll be right back. All right, and we're back. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, just had to do a little uh, shout-out to our Anchor Network and all our Anchor Network affiliates and friends. Thank you all for uh, giving us kind words on Twitter and uh, the Facebook pages. But uh, also a little shout-out to uh, Larry Hamilton of Follow Me and Die. He's been uh, doing some good stuff over there, so make sure you uh, check out his, as well as Frosoth, his podcast, uh, The Psionic Platypus and all that. Uh, you know, long time call in guy that uh, long time caller, <laughs> long time listener. Um, we're glad to have you around as well. And so, always check out Frost's blog and uh, his podcast as well. So, um, yeah, so what's our topic for tonight? We had a little controversial warning, so here we're going to dip our toe into waters that probably are shark and or piranha infested because so many people have opinions about this. This is about the Kotaku article that was, uh, out this week about Arneson versus Gygax and uh, Rob Kuntz throwing in on his perspective on this. And as we start this, I want to just kind of lay this out on the table that our opinions, of course, are from people who played the game. And a lot of the things that we know are not just from casually being associated with the game, but actual research. John Peterson's playing the world 
gives a very good view of this, as well as several other books that are not as widely read on. But um, Paul Stromberg has uh, weighed in on this as well. So, Not to mention, at the time that we were first becoming familiar with the game, uh, you know, we were second wave gamers. The, yeah. The end of the 70s, dawn of the 80s, uh, by which time the transformation had taken place, uh, D&D as an R as a role-playing game, had had assumed a recognizable form. Uh, but most of the material was easily available uh, if you had a comic book shop or a bookstore in your area. And the names in those publications, the people who were the authors, uh, were well known to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as avid readers of Dragon Magazine and other things, we other things, we became pretty familiar with the major names, uh, even almost subliminally. You know, it, we were just reading articles and having fun, and we were terribly young, uh, but a lot of those writers' names stuck with us. So, it, you know, these <laughs> articles that uh, come forth now, uh, seemingly putting forward that, you know, like, our hoary-bearded elders, uh, no secrets from the ancient past... Uh, it's not that ancient, dude. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe to like a post-millennial born in uh, 2000. Yes. Okay. That would be like, whoa, mind equals blown, man. Right. Uh, and everybody, you didn't know. everybody who was born uh, and, you know, grew up in the 1970s, uh, on the other hand, is less surprised by any of this. The, the, the notion that it, this is hidden info Let's just debunk that right on the face. Yeah, so I let, take exception to that. So let's just jump right in. Um, yeah, the article asserts itself watch. that there's this hidden meaning. And, of course, uh, one of the people who's kind of promoting it is the Secrets of Blackmore. Uh, I guess video, documentary, you want to call them. They're uh, chronicling a lot of this. And I, I applaud that because I think that it's time that we put into writing and also archive the history of the game especially the prehistory of where this all got started and into a format that people can look at for later generations and understand how this got started. And it is kind of a narrative that has changed over a period of time. So let's just start off with that uh, it asserts that Arneson was not given its due and that's a big secret and, you know, everybody will shit their pants and you know, the world will come unglued. Yeah, pardon our French. Uh, you know, just to, we were not impressed by the histrionic tone that this was some incredible unknown data. Like, it, after, it, this is not a Geraldo Rivera moment, you know, Al Capone thing, uh, except in the sense that when the tomb is finally opened, there's nothing. Uh, you know, that, the idea that there's a lot of meat on this, it's not much. Everybody knows that Arneson, you know, Got the short end of the stick. Uh, yeah, he did, and that's that's settled. This, and he also this is a known quantity. He also had a lot to contribute, and he may, as the article asserts, and Rob Koontz also injects that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we didn't get to see that he did, and of course uh, that's his experience. I mean, yes, he was there. Uh, he was a young man in the Gygax household, and he saw a lot of this going on. But I'm not going to get into what his thoughts were, as just as much as what kind of our take is on it from not only outsiders, but also people who took some time to understand this, that Arneson started in the Twin Cities Gaming Group 
And he ran a campaign kind of for Napoleonics called Bronstein, where you kind of had this uh, localized area that other players with Napoleonic era miniatures could enter in. It was a little bit more freeform, but it was the proto-start of a campaign world. But as saying that's totally Arneson's idea, now come on. Um, yeah, that Howard was not created the... Hyboria. Token created Middle Earth. I mean, um, Ursula de Gwyn, Ursi, I mean, authors had been working on their own specific worlds, not only just to play stories in, but also people would pick up and run with games during this early time where chainmail and other fantasy roles were being supported. Yeah, this was not an isolated circumstance, nor was it first just, you know, right out of the gate. Uh, this this was a phenom that had remarkably remained local for the most part. There was yeah. no mass publishing taking place. So it was ongoing around the country as wargaming groups working with miniatures began to fuse in elements of fantasy. Uh, and it was not just one table. Uh, the fascinating thing is that with the enormous popularity of Middle-earth, and we've, we've spoken of that mm -hmm. with uh, the Tolkien episode, the huge looming popularity of these novels in the 1960s started to creep their way in at wargaming tables with familiar old miniatures now getting little renamings. You know, my Napoleonic troops are, are now elves. Uh, yeah, my Burgundians <laughs> are elven uh, archers. And, you know, these, these Englishmen over here are going to be my, my orcish army, and uh, these uh, you know, Germans over here will represent my doughty dwarves, uh, and you know, so on and so forth. This was creeping up all over the place, and, well... Nobody had quite put a name on it yet. Nobody sat down and published a straight-up campaign world. But it seemed like a lot of people had them. Uh, they had their idea of what they wanted. Like, well, let's create a mythical place, kind of like uh, old Avalon. Uh, yeah. You know, ancient England, something Arthurian. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, Merlin and Arthur versus Mordred. Uh, yeah, and they started to inject fantasy elements right off the get-go, but also Chainmail came out. And there is kind of an assertion there in this article, as well as I believe in The Secrets of Blackmore, that uh, Chainmail wasn't the only one. And, I'm, you know, I'm willing to go with that because, really, that's just kind of the way that uh, convergent evolution works, that two people in two different areas come up with the same idea does not mean that any, either one was completely ignorant of each other, but that they still fed off of each other's ideas, but yet still evolved their ideas in a coherent format, all of their own in unique environment. Yeah. And Arneson had the Blackmore campaign, which is legendary in the fact that it contained the first dungeon environment. And I think Gygax was very smart as to when he was starting to put the Dungeon Dragons rules together, having a dungeon sort of like a playing map or a board that you would play on made it approachable and understandable to a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I do want to make a publishing reference here uh, with regard to... <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, in the world of publishing, if a person writes a authoritative book about dinosaurs, this does not mean that no one else can write a book about dinosaurs. You cannot copy it word for word and page for page and just reprint the exact same book under a different cover. That would be plagiarism. Now, uh, 
you know, you write one book and it's all about the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And you're like, wasn't the Tyrannosaurus Rex awesome? Yeah. And then somebody writes a book and goes, Stegosauruses were cool too. Uh, and yeah. all of a sudden, everybody's writing books about dinosaurs. What about the Triceratops, man? Yeah, let's not forget the noble Triceratops. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. And <laughs> so stoic. Uh, the Diplocatus. You know, just... Uh. Well, in any case, the, the point being that many people who are not actively involved in any kind of publishing atmosphere have no idea what plagiarism means, what uh, copyright actually entails. Uh, writing original and different material on a similar theme is 100% in the safe zone, and in fact, that's, that's pretty much welcome to every author ever. Uh, there is very little that is entirely new and, you know, Almost nothing has ever been hatched from, uh, you know, the, the skull of Zeus. Fully formed, yeah. Yeah, fully formed. It doesn't work like that. In a creative world, it's an exchange of influences. So Dungeons and & Dragons and, of course, Chainmail also fall into that. But here's a noted difference. A lot of the other terrific things that were happening at that time... Uh, I've I brushed up against this before... And you really don't see many samples of it in this era. Uh, but the Xerox copies, there were people who built campaign worlds, built rules, and had friends going to another town. Like, can I have a backup copy of the rule system for this in case, like, when I land in uh, Milwaukee, I can try this game? Or the guy from Milwaukee says, like, I'm about to transfer to Caltech and I'm going to be in California for the next, like, four years. So uh, can you just run off some Xerox copies of this thing you've done and send me with it? There were things being published. Were they published in the rigid, familiar format that we first saw Chainmail in, uh, with its small, bound volumes? Uh, no. Many of these things were not published in a formal sense, but they there are some that did, in fact, predate Chainmail. Yeah, and Artisan true. had his own uh, campaign, Bronstein, where he could do things outside of just wargaming for the characters there. And that would form the impetus of how he would develop the Blackmore campaign, which, of course, did use part of the Chainmail system. But that's where people say, well, that's where the lie is. Well, okay, I'm not going to split hairs on that because... You know, I wasn't there, and if, even people who were there, I'm still calling it out on the fact that the end result was is that Arneson and Gygax collaborated for a period of time and then differed on many approaches. Now, Gygax did go on to shut Arneson out of the game. Uh, he would change the rules to make an advanced Dungeons & Dragons, give it a different name, and yet still support Dungeons & Dragons as a kind of more loose and less organized but still fun fantasy game whereas he kind of promoted the AD&D game as kind of like an official standardized format that everybody knew where they stood there was not much room for permutation or house ruling per se in official play if you played Advanced Dungeons Dragons around your kitchen table or in your friend's house yeah your campaign could be different but you know he even went on to say that my campaign of Greyhawk is different than the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons rules, and would also then go to mention that, so is Arneson's Blackmore campaign different than his Greyhawk and D&D campaigns? Yeah, this is basically a reaffirmation of what is made pretty clear in the DM's guide, that uh, 
the creative uh, behind the screen has to make a series of decisions. And if you're mindful of game balance, then you can have all kinds of radical differences in the way you present a game to your players. Uh, that Gygax kind of got this. I mean, but that was also, I think, a shrewd acknowledgement of the fact that you were dealing with a phenomenon among people who had a creative bent to begin with. They were, you know, looking for that flight of fancy. They wanted to inject their, you know, ideas and thoughts into the game. Uh, and creating a rule system that was adaptive enough and open enough to invite other people to create was a smart move. And that that one, you didn't see that published in a lot of other books. A lot, no. of, other, a lot of other game manuals like, this is how you play, here's the rules. Uh, having one that actually said, hey, here's how you make your own rules and be mindful of what you alter so that it doesn't impede the enjoyment of the game. That is something really hadn't been seen before. Right, and, you know, there were all sorts of divergent rules that would grow into their own games over a period of time. Ardwin Grimoire... Um, there's a couple other ones from the West Coast that um, John Peterson talks about in Playing the World that uh, were divergent rules how to play Dungeons and Dragons, and even like RuneQuest uh, developed completely a different way of playing the game with percental dice and armor absorbing damage based from Steve Perrin and other people uh, in the SCA on the West Coast that uh, Greg Stafford latched onto. We'll, we'll get around to doing RuneQuest at some point in time, but. Uh, you know, all these did come about because Dungeons & Dragons appeared on the scene. And Gygax was pretty firm in saying, this is our game. And even at first, he was a little confrontational with other people getting in on the action. Uh, Ken St. Andre and uh, Rick Loomis, rest in peace, is, uh, of course, famous for kind of uh, berating Gygax for trying to take complete ownership of it. As they developed uh, their own set of rules to play a fantasy simulation. Um, there's also some assertion in the Kotaku article itself that the injection of fantasy creatures itself kind of ruined the game or took it away. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say that there's a plastic bag of monsters that were used where we see the rust monster, the owlbear, the boule, and the umber hulk all were taken out of the, that plastic bag of monsters that were just created, you know, from somebody's imagination and sculpting tools and mass marketed out in uh, supermarkets and toy stores. And they took those and made miniature monsters out of them because, you know, the game needed a little bit more meat on the bones for our opponents. You know, smashing orcs in the face is pretty fun for a while, but, you know, there's other monsters like, well, yeah, you can use giant spiders and giant scorpions. That kind of figures in there. And yeah. Skellymans and uh, scary ghost men or Nazgul. But, yeah. you know, you need, you still, the game was wide open for injection of all sorts of ideas. So, kind of claiming that, like, well, it got ruined when you put silly things like ochre jelly and, what, I spread that on my toast in the morning? Marmalade? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he didn't like marmalade. I don't know. And, yeah. you know, gelatinous cubes, like, jello brand gelatinous cube. I... <laughs> I, I do want to pause for a minute uh, and credit Mr. Arneson where it's due. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, Randy touched on it, and I, I do want to elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, to me, Arneson's greatest contribution was in exactly that moment 
that uh, a formalized, specific campaign setting had been presented. Now, right. you know, not published in completion first, but uh, examined by people. It, it Just the fact that such a thing had been done, a relatively complete setting, uh, maybe a lot of the details weren't filled in, and maybe it was the first time anybody had done it, so nobody could say with absolute certainty where it needed to go or not go. Noisy uh, jet excuse. Yes, but uh, we are near an airport. But uh, the point being, Arneson, in completing at least a semi-coherent first example mm-hmm. of a campaign world, uh, even if it did need a lot of work, it inspired a lot of other people. Yeah, uh, that it could be cobbled together, made ready, uh, cleaned up, uh, edited, and put in a linear format that people could make sense of, and then employ in their own game. Uh, that notion, well, he was first. Yeah, he also was, and nobody can take that away. And I mean, more to the point, the idea that that was a secret. Uh, it is just mind-boggling to me yeah, because, because I mean Arneson has long been accredited with the first serious attempt to develop a proper campaign world, with Greyhawk coming afterwards. Yeah, and uh, I'll touch on that on a continuation. Yeah, I'll we'll, pick it up. Uh, we'll hit up that transition right after the initial release of the White Box set, where his name's on the cover. It says Ar- Garnis- Arneson and Guy. Yeah. Uh, it also there's a little uh, thing in there about Don K. Don K. Just as uh, side note, was uh, a friend of Guy Gax's who passed away shortly thereafter, but invested uh, some of his life insurance to help get the game started, and uh, he was inc- mentioned in there as well. So I think that speaks well of everybody involved. But more importantly, the first supplement release was called Blackmore, and in Blackmore was the infamous Temple of the Frog, complete with priests that use laser rifles and. You know, I had other such oddities salvaged from this vaunted city of the gods to north. And so, Mike's exactly right. Now, while I might chide the people saying, like, oh, hey, you know, Middle-earth, Hyperborea, uh, or Hyborea, pardon me, I always want to say Hyper, but Hyborea and Middle-earth and uh, Ursi, they all had worlds and maps and things that you were kind of looking there, oh, what's the Tower of the Mists about? And yeah, you know, you would think about that. But here was your opportunity to fill all those blanks in yourself. Now, you could use a pre-prepared kind of idea out of Middle-earth or, you know, Conan's world, or make up your own. But, you know, Arneson was starting to show the first phases of how campaign development was kind of starting. You know, you start from an area and you build out words. And, you know, your characters have these knowledge of places around them and that they might like, like to explore or look up themselves. And so this was important to show how, like, the Temple of Frog was made as an example of a campaign-inclusive dungeon that just wasn't just like, okay, here's a dungeon full of monsters, go kill. Okay, yeah, the Temple of Frog was a temple full of <laughs> monsters to go kill. But it had a purpose, and there was lore into it. And I think that at point, maybe Arneson isn't as remembered as he should be. Because uh, from all accounts, including my friend Jay Walker, uh, she, yes, that's her name, Jay Walker. Her parents, I guess. (laughs) Had had a marvelous sense of humor. But Jay had uh, worked with Arneson uh, quite a bit in the uh, development of the Blackmore open gaming uh, campaign for the RPGA back in the day. 
And she said, you know, he was always, you know, giving little insights and tidbits about his campaign. He was a very creative person. Um, there's different people that have different opinions about both Gygax and Arneson. Uh, I've talked with Gary several times, got a game with him once, and I've talked with Arneson as well. And my personal impressions of him is that they were very easy to get along with people who were eager to share what they knew. They were not holding any secrets. Gygax uh, and Arneson did kind of bury the hatchet when uh, Wizards of the Coast acquired Dungeons and Dragons properly from and um, from TSR. Excuse me. When they announced the third edition rules, and I remember Arneson saying that, you know, he was very proud to be part of the legacy of D and D, and as he should be. And I think that's kind of where maybe it should lie. If there was any rivalry between the men. I think uh, enough water passed under the bridge, to use an analogy, may have occurred that they could look past their previous differences and rancor and come to a conclusion that, you know, the game is going to a new generation. Yeah, that sooner or later you've got to hand off the reins. Right. Uh, and, and they had both gone through that. I mean, you know, Gary himself was uh, ousted from yep. the helm. Uh, but, you know, I, I see this very much as an almost, uh, you know, Steve Jobs uh, versus Wozniak yeah. uh, kind of scenario where you had a superb creative uh, whose you know, work is looked back on with great respect, uh, and then a person with a much greater ability to project how a thing can be accomplished. Uh, you know how can like a, in a how can we increase the scale of this? Yeah. Uh, where do we? You know, what are the implements that we need to use to do this? And navigating the world of publishing and finance is actually the much harder of the two things. There are a lot of creatives. There are not as many creatives who are good at you know managing and expanding and advertising uh, a business concept. So getting gaming off the ground and getting it to a point where it goes from a fledgling thing done with Xerox copies in college boardrooms, <laughs> uh, you know, borrowed time. Uh, well, we got the dean's permission to borrow this area for, you know, our, our game and set up our miniatures. You know, that, getting that to transition from a tiny, tiny click in a few places into a national paradigm, that... It was a Herculean accomplishment, so it's equally valuable. I mean, yeah, the uh, Gygax brought in the Bloom brothers, who were uh, business heads, and uh, they were, for better or for worse, kind of the type of people that you needed to start getting finance started in laying the groundwork. And of course, we're inheritors of the Bloom brothers' work because we got the published stuff. We got the stuff that was okay. It was still a little rough at the edges, but uh, it was pretty polished and smooth, and it was a marketable product. You could not say that about the white box. I'm sorry for everybody who loves the white box, and oh, I love oh, it too. Oh, it's yeah. It, let, let, let's let's spell out that we view it with enormous affection. But was it an incredibly high quality piece of published work? It was the first out of the gate, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. just like the first editions of a lot of games are a little rough at times. Nowadays, we can look. You know, there's a certain formula that people follow, and you can take a. a published format like Zvihander and, you know, deliver that right out the gate with just absolute polish and aplomb and clarity to it. 
because we had to crawl through the vague <laughs> references, even in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, like initiative. Like, what do we, uh, lowest roll goes? What I isn't the goal of this game to roll high? Nope, not an initiative. Roll low. Oh, right. Okay, I get you. Overall speed. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it, okay, it's, it's clear as mud, and uh, that's where we're going to leave it off. But, yeah, I, we've already slogged through that mud all these years later. There are now established like groups of people who have a firm grasp on the rule systems and the core concepts behind them, uh, and are able to eloquently put those in front of others. Uh, it's, it's worth remembering that at the time that the original white box sets were published, there was nothing else like it to go on. The, yeah, they other, were winging it. Other games would come out and do it a little bit better, a little bit more polished, and each succession got a little bit better. But more to the point, I guess, to kind of bring it a little bit back home as we wend our way out of Mordor now, uh, I dislike people trying to drum up controversy over Arneson and Gygax. It's not a real big secret, okay? Arneson was treated unfairly. Yeah. That is a fact. Yeah, nobody... I, I've never actually heard anybody openly contest... That Gygax was absolutely right to shut Arneson out. Yeah, yeah I, I've never heard that professed by almost anyone. Um, so it is incredibly disingenuous to characterize this as some carefully hidden secret like, you know... Uh, Al Capone's tomb. You're exactly right to bring up the Geraldo Rivera, that there's some unknown secret. What could be down here? Could there be lost gold? Could there be contraband booze? Could there be bodies? Yeah, that... Uh, and there's an old shoe and some bottles. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a hobo lost his shoe during a bender 60 years ago before this got sealed up. No, uh, that is very much what this is like. And I, I while I appreciate... The effort to bring more attention to Dave Arneson's amazing work, uh, the the material that he provided eventually morphed into the background for the idea of campaign play. Uh, it just it was the well of inspiration from which a lot of people drew. So, yeah, bringing him attention, I am one hundred percent on board. However, using Really sensationalistic language uh, for clickbait purposes is crass and mm -hmm. pretty actually disrespectful of the memory of Dave Artisan, who was not that big of a jerk. No, guy uh, Gags he had was a really moments. nice guy. I think uh, this is my personal take: is there's people grow and change. I think success changes people, but I also think that Guy Gags came across at times high-handed. He also was authoritative, and he was easy to dislike if you were somebody like Steve Jackson, uh, not the guy who was with Ian Livingstone in uh, Games Workshop, but Steve Jackson, Steve Jackson Games. Um, he did not like how Gary came across to, to him, and even the Bloom Brothers would uh, and them would lock horns over certain things, like, what was it, the game Assassin? Uh, it was kind of a LARP thing where you oh know, the original assassin LARP yeah and they got in <laughs> trouble over that and were told to get out of Gen Con and he told him like go bring me a cease and desist letter and I'll we'll talk I paid for this booth give me my refund back then if you're gonna kick me out 
And, of course, you know, he was still able to sell copies. But that was all because people were a little edgy about a game that encourages, you know, the assassination of friends. It's like, Jesus, it's a game, okay? You know. Yeah, this this involves, you know, like uh, uh, smearing a little petroleum jelly on somebody's locker handle so that when they touch it and you're off in the background somewhere, as soon as they go, ew, you go, gotcha. Yeah, you're, you're out. You're poison. Oh, man. Contact poison. And just creating this state of paranoia that is purely non-fatal. As, squirt gun fights. Yeah, the squirt gun fights in the uh, the quad. <laughs> <laughs> With the lights out. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, the, there were some hilarious moments for assassin LARPing. Uh, but <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, that is that is they another, did they did get uh, there were some l- contentions over that one. But when Gary Guy got ousted, I also think he had a little bit of a humbling experience. I'm not trying to say that this was good or bad. It's something that happens to everybody in life. You, your life changes, and he came across to me. Oh, of course, he was much older, almost grandfatherly, um, and also kind of mischievous more than he was authoritarian now he was always trying to mess with your head especially when you were playing because he knew that you were metagaming he already had that wrapped up that you were always going to be trying to outthink the guy behind the screen so he tried to keep a couple steps ahead of you by messing with your head and i think that mischievousness is what i best remember dave arneson i never got to play with I just talked to him a few times. He was very friendly, shook my hand, and we talked about Blackmore and some things, and he recommended some books to, for me to read, and what I asked him, like, Brees carrying laser rifles, and he's like, well, that's the kind of vision I had for the game back then, and, you know, maybe that wasn't uh, something uh, well thought of. I mean, because I asked specifically, hey, did you, you know, did that creep into Expedition and the Barrier Peaks or anything like that? And, yeah, it might have very well been the inspiration for it, you know. But he wouldn't say anything, Aaron A. He was just like, well, that's kind of a different uh, bag of beans. And, you know, I'd prefer to focus on what I'm doing right now. I'm, yeah, I get it. Well, yeah, and if we play the game of who inspired who, I mean, oh, you yeah. know, let's face it, uh, it, it runs endlessly. Uh, and look at the graceful way uh, Neil Gaiman handled uh, it was the, the Harry Potter series came out with the English kid with glasses who oh, has that? that terrible. Uh, Spellbound, wasn't that? Uh, no, uh, it was. The Books of Magic. Books of Magic. I'm sorry. You know, so when J.K. Rowling and I were were both in the same age group, uh, were perusing the comic shops and uh, bookstores, uh, there was a comic out called The Books of Magic, uh, and it was Neil Gaiman's uh, creation with a English kid with glasses and a terrible home life and an owl for a companion who is the inheritor of a powerful magical tradition. <laughs> and now... When when they quizzed Neil Gaiman on this, you know, he just said, well, I never wrote anything about a school for young witches and wizards, uh, you know, populated by all of these creatures, and I, I think they're wonderful books, and they're making lots of children read. He had nothing ill to say. He may very well have been an inspiration for one of the most beloved book series of all time, but that's actually an accomplishment in itself. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. If you inspired somebody and they went off and they wrote their own stories uh, and they created something that had not been there before, good for you. Yeah, and I think that takes us to the wrap-up point when we come back to the show now, is that quit trying to say that you were the first with the most, and especially the people who are no longer with us. As I alluded to, I thought that the bearing of the hatchet between the two men when they shook hands and they said that this was a game that they were proud to be 
associated with the third edition. Yeah. We took that in, at face value. We believed them when they did it. Uh, Maybe know. they were getting a paycheck. Maybe this was in their best interest to say something. But I don't think that was completely disingenuous. And even whatever spin you want to put on it where you want to say, well, these guys hated each other. Well, may, there was a time, yes, that they had no kind words for one another. Well, you know, it was their Beatles rooftop moment, you yep. know, where they, they, like, hey, we're putting the band back together for a show. Let's let's go up there and, you know, show the kids what it's all about. Uh, you know, they, they had their uh, reunion. Uh, the Velvet Underground, which was predicted to never have a reunion, uh, as long as... As long as there was fire in hell, there wasn't supposed to be a Velvet Underground reunion. And, of course, 30 years later in Paris, uh, you know, they performed live together with the original crew and made quite the, uh, made quite the show. Ever notice how much our tastes of gaming and music run into one another? They cross paths often. But, yes, anyway. I'm... But, yeah, the, the point being... Right. That, uh, Whatever had passed beneath the bridge, so much time had passed between it that it is surprisingly... No, not surprisingly. It is incredibly easy to believe that these guys had made their peace in an effort to recreate a war over nothing. Uh, we wouldn't have the game if it wasn't pretty, for either men. So let us just end it at that. Yeah, what, what we would have would be radically different had events transpired some other way. A lot of hemming and hawing and wishing for this, that, or the other thing does not change what actually happened. And I'm pretty pleased with the final result. I mean, here we are looking at the robust success of a fifth edition, mm -hmm. which is a fitting legacy for... And so many other great games, too, have come out of that initial big bang of Dungeons & Dragons' birth. Oh, yeah. The, and we played a huge number of them. I, we, we have the secondary honor of being notably unbiased like you know are dice hitting the table well then i'm there right uh, you know it's so what kind of game are you into i don't know what do you got yeah uh, there you go so <laughs> we're gonna end it with that just uh again we like where we're at right now and it's good to look back in the past but let's not dredge up things that serve no other purpose than to generate anger and outcry over something that's been settled yeah i mean this this and you know let's not characterize anything as mysterious and unknown that oh this is, secret will blow your mind if you just click on it and read yeah. the article with all the links and cookies and oh, follow, adware follow, follow all 37 separate slideshow pages you know laden yeah. with advertising now you know it just yeah there's a certain disingenuousness to this that did not sit right with me uh and both characters uh gygax and arneson uh, I would not disrespect either of them in quite that way. That is, I, no. I might have my contentions about you know, like uh, their actions then, uh, but uh, to assassinate the character of either of them, no, never. No, uh, and really and myself. that goes for Rob Coons too. He he's entitled to his opinion, and obviously he was there. I'm going to politely disagree with some of the. Assertions he makes after the fact, but I think right up until that point, I, he's spot on. So, either way, we're going to wind it up here. We've abused yeah, yeah, your we've, good will, and obviously, your hearing. We've mistreated your ears long enough. So, we're going to uh, pack it in, call the night, and remember, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach us on our Facebook page, The Dice Are Screaming, or get a hold of us directly at Twitter, where we'll be more than kindly to respond to you as quick as we can, provided. 
that uh, we check our Twitter accounts. Because um, <laughs> I've been a little remiss on that. Ding! And uh, that There's our little, remiss for the day. Yeah, that's our remiss. So, uh, good gaming for you. And remember, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. Thank you.